Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about The Breakfast Club, the 1985 film written and directed by John Hughes. It's happening. It's, it's really <laughs> happening, everybody. Uh, I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hey, hey! <laughs> and Alex Galleros. Hi. <laughs> Alex also has to bring up the rear after Brian. <laughs> have to follow Brian every time. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about The Breakfast Club. Uh, it's an 80s movie. It's 1985. It's exactly in the middle of the 80s. The midpoint. It's the midpoint of the 80s. Uh, and it's a really good movie. So I had seen this movie... N not at all, uh, more or less. Uh, I had seen like clips of it or, you know, pictures or, you know, watched documentaries about the history of film and you see kids dancing on a table and everyone's like, oh, it's so good. And it's like, yeah, sure. Uh, so actually sitting down and watching this movie start to finish, beginning had some 80s bumpiness to it with some of the style choices. Uh, but pretty quickly I was into it and the sort of putting the the theme the subject matter right there in the opening where you're getting this monologue right aloud of you know this kid telling you know a teacher you know you don't get to tell us who we are it immediately was broadcasting to me that like there's something like deeper happening here some of that first 10 15 minutes as they're getting to know each other very dated dialogue a little bit hard for me to like start to buy in and care about these people uh but by the end i really really liked this movie i feel like i understand why it's so celebrated and loved and has stood the test of time and i was really struck by how not shallow it was and how it, it's I feel like it's does that thing where characters get what they need, but not necessarily what they want by the end or not not in the shape that they might have expected. And so for that to all be contained in a you know movie about high schoolers, ostensibly for high schoolers, uh, it was pretty cool. So Breakfast Club, good movie, I've discovered. <laughs> Very Welcome. 80s movies can be good. Yeah. yeah. It turns yeah. out Michael's dislike of 80s movies comes from him not having actually watched them. I mean, but whose fault is that, really? Uh, 
But I want to hear from you guys. Uh, yeah, your thoughts on the Breakfast Club. If you're new to the Breakfast Club, or if that's if that's just me, <laughs> Trisha, tell me about the Breakfast Club. Sure. I want to give credit to one of my best friends from middle school, who was actually a very formative like movie person in my life. My friend Stephanie, and she was just like a movie buff. And she just watched a lot of movies. And I don't know who showed them to her or where she, I don't know, got a hold of them. I think she got a lot of them from the library. But she would, like, find out I hadn't seen a movie and insist immediately that we watch it together. And actually quite a few films that I think we've talked about on here were ones that I watched for the first time with her in her basement. <laughs> and it was just, like, I don't know. So this was one of those. I just I have very distinct raw memory of sitting in Stephanie's basement with her watching the breakfast club for the first time and just feeling like my world had been exploded and, uh, feeling very seen and very angsty and so, so teen. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. And this of course would have been in the nineties. So definitely not in the era that The Breakfast Club was made, but it was a classic. Like, you know, at the time it came out, it, it spoke directly to teenagers in such a way that made it very successful and sparked a thousand copycats. One of our patrons pointed out that Empire Records is a very similar kind of a film mm -hmm. that came out in the 90s that was a little bit more of like our era. I don't want to say there are a lot of movies that are knockoffs of this, but there are a lot of other films that have tried to replicate the magic of The Breakfast Club, um, especially in its portrayal of teenagers. This was not a common, like a teen movie was not a genre before John Hughes made it one, really. It's nice to go back and revisit the source of it in this film. And uh, I've loved it ever since then. And I've seen it many, many, many times. I quote it probably too much. And uh, it was a joy, as always, rewatching it for this. Excellent. Yeah, you know, one of our patrons, uh, Hemlock Sillage, uh, asked, like, what genre is this? And that's something I think could be fun to, like, get into of, like, what are the genres that are getting remixed? It's kind of a prison movie. Like, there's lots of different things that it's, <laughs> it's borrowing from here. Yeah. Um, awesome. Brian, what about you? Yeah, this is a movie, definitely a movie that I feel like has always been there. Uh, I can't remember when I saw it for the first time, but Trish and I discovered that in 2010, eight years before we had ever met, I was Bender for Halloween and she was Claire. So, uh, absolutely wild. Yeah. Those were really good costumes we both had. <laughs> right. Ch check our Twitter if we remember at all to, to share yep. them. Um, yep. but, uh, I was also remembering that in high school, my friend made a movie we went to Mannheim Township High School in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he made a movie called MT Massacre 2, which was the sequel to MT Massacre, which he had made in middle school, um, which I was in. And we had a bunch of scenes where we were running from a serial killer, but running through the halls to Wang Chung. And he was like, yeah, we wanted, we're doing the breakfast club thing. And I was like, what? I don't even know what you're talking about, but okay. And so like I was in scenes from the breakfast club, I think maybe before I had seen the breakfast club, but yeah, I love this movie. Uh, it's just, it, it, I feel like it's one of those movies where when I'm watching it, I'm like, there's a lot of emotion happening. There's a lot of really cool thematic stuff happening, but it's also just fun and funny. And it's the kind of movie that's so quotable and, you know, like, remember that scene? Remember that scene? I think like that's kind of the the full package. You know, there are movies where like they're really like Anchorman or something where it's like, oh, I'm going to quote that movie and it's funny or whatever. But like, 
it's not going to make me think. It's not going to make me like, you know, think about my life. It's not gonna make me cry. Right. Uh, and breakfast club is just kind of like, it does a little bit of everything, uh, in a way that I think really works. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a, like a pretty tight package too. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's yes. efficient, but doesn't feel rushed or like it's taking a long time. It just like happens just right. Um, awesome. Alex, what about you? Yeah. I'm trying to figure out if I've seen this movie like back in high school when I also watched like 16 candles for sure. I saw in high school and really mm -hmm. hit me with the teen feels. Um, and I, I know I had friends that were super into the breakfast club. So I don't know. It's probably one of those things where it was like playing on a TV at a hangout where I didn't pay attention fully. But this movie has also been a cultural touchstone that I'm aware of, but haven't really ever thought about. And so watching it closely and deeply this time was really rewarding because, yeah, I didn't really know that it would still hit me this hard. And as you said, Michael, how deep it actually was. It, it wasn't just this kind of prototypical like here's the teen archetypes in the archetypal teen movie. And that's it. It, it goes a level deeper than that. And it's about, you know, actually the full humanity of these characters below the archetypes. So yeah, I found it really rewarding to watch. I found, I felt like I had a lot of screenwriting lessons. It was a great example of a, were some people in a room talking for a day yep. kind of movie. It's just a really compelling example of that. Uh, so yeah, I, I loved it. And now I want to go back and rewatch 16 Candles and remember what I loved about that one as well. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, well, and yeah, like you're saying, there are so many screenwriting lessons in it. I could see how it would be really easy for someone who doesn't understand how like the depth of it and like what what's happening underneath the surface to go and try to make a copycat film of it right. and not copy the like the parts of it that are getting at the heart and soul of of these kids and capturing what that experience is like this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover on Mubi. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. It's a great way to discover the best of cinema. For example, before Midnight, the third in the Before trilogy that tracks the relationship between Jesse and Celine across 20 years, is streaming on Mubi. This trilogy of films is one of the best out there and one of my favorites, and Before Midnight is a captivatingly entertaining and emotionally provocative finale for this trilogy, and you can watch it today. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thanks to Movie for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. So, so one of the things that I was struck by uh, as the movie began, sort of like I mentioned, it starts with you're hearing the Brian character reading the essay that he will eventually write uh, about, you know, you you saw us like this in a kind of a two-dimensional way, but like we learned we're all we're all all these things. We're all three dimensional characters. It's interesting that the movie starts that way and sort of tells you what's going to happen, but in a way that is, you know, it plants that idea that can then kind of live in your subconscious, but it isn't, you know, like the fight club version where it's like, we're going to show you 
like one of the final scenes of the movie and then the narrator's going to be like, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's kind of uh, deftly doing that and kind of uh, implanting, inceptioning these sort of ideas into your head. Uh, and then I think it, that helps that it's contrasted immediately by meeting all the characters and establishing how different they all are just from how they're dropped off at the high school mm-hmm. by their parents. Like there's so much work doing happening in there. And Trisha, as as I always do now, I was thinking about the uh, the Devil Wears Prada opening, mm-hmm. the video yep. that we made about the first 10 pages of using contrast to established characters. And I feel like this movie throughout it has lots of different examples of that being done in a really effective way. Yeah, I was struck by that too. Um, and I was the thing I thought about this time that I kind of hadn't thought of before uh, is the parent characters and how the movie. So as Brian pointed out, I think off mic, the movie actually starts with a quote on screen and the quote, it's a Bowie quote. Is that right, Brian? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's a quote about like now these kids that you, whatever, they're very aware of what they're going through. Right. It seems like uh, sort of this manifesto quote, that's directed at adults about the teens, mm-hmm. right? And it's saying like, re- you need to rethink what you know about teenagers because they are different than how you think adults. Um, and then it starts with, you know, the Brian character seemingly directly addressing an adult figure. We're not really, uh, th- he might name him. I think he starts off, you know, with like, dear Mr. So-and-so. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, there's this, the central opposition of the movie is being set up as being teens versus adults in a lot of ways. And then the drop-off goes even deeper into that. So the contrast in the drop-off is not just, here's how all these teen characters are different from each other. And I think that the work that's being done with that is very deft. And like we're instantly sort of seeing the stereotypes in, you know, from everything from the model and make of the cars to the way the teens are dressed to all of this like visual storytelling that's happening. But the adult characters in the cars are also there to antagonize the teen characters as they're being dropped off, right? We get that scene where um, Brian's mom is like, is this the first time we do this or the last time we do this? And his sister's in the car with him, you yeah. know? Yeah. we get Claire's father who's also like kind of placating her but he's like oh well well you know you can't ditch class to go shopping sweetheart and she's like you can't get me out of this but again there's this antagonism between the teens and their parents that preps us for sort of the central conflict of the movie which is actually not between the teens Right. It's actually between the teenagers and the adults. Mm -hmm. It's like such a smart way to start it. And it reminds me that just like one of the options you have, probably the smartest one you have when you're writing an ensemble is introduce all the characters separately before you put Mm -hmm. them in a room together. Um, Knives Out does this. (laughs) Like this is very, you know, we talked about that. movie, And then Little Miss Sunshine. Mm Yeah. Which was our patron exclusive this month. We just talked about that introduce them all separately, then put them in a room together and we'll go from there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just overall like super efficient scene work. And then, you know, the sort of 
ghost parent relationship where you have Bender just walking, like wandering onto campus, right? right? Like without a parent at all, which is in itself telling. Um, But yeah, there's so much characterization. I mean, I don't want to jump too far forward into the movie, but it's like how they interact with their parents, how they interact with Vernon, where they sit, how they sit, Yep. What they eat for lunch, which is a big one, you know, like this movie is just full of like, <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, as, as several of our, our patrons pointed out, um, there's, it's a lot of archetypal stuff, right? It's a lot of here is the princess, here is the brain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not still incredibly valuable to show us these moments, right? Show us these moments of like, this is what they're eating. This is how they're eating. I brought sushi for lunch, which, you know, sushi age is great. You know, you want to get sushi and keep it for three hours and then eat it. It's a fantastic idea. Um, but like just these almost ridiculous ways that the characters are introduced just to be like, Hey, look how different they are. And like also then to introduce the conflicts, not just between them and the adults, but also the conflicts that they're going to have with each other, especially in the first act, uh, the first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, early sequence when they're all just forced to kind of be quiet and stay in the room together. The the film is really clever at using these just human experiences that we all have to, we all have to eat. And mm. so if we're going to eat, that's the way we're going to learn about each other. Even if we don't really care about each other or want to talk to each other, we're going to notice your food. We're going to notice what you're doing with your food over there. Uh, and I think the the movie is is good in that in that first sequence when people aren't really wanting to be together, finding little ways in which they're observing each other, commenting on each other. And of course, Bender is really the driver of you know the conversation and and people kind of having to interact, partially because I think what is so interesting and great about his character is he's really ultimately jealous of all these kids. You know, I, I feel like he's observing all of them. And thinking about you, know, he's projecting what kind of life they all have. That they're, you know, they're the evidence he's seeing of Brian's great, perfect lunch, uh, and that's driving him to kind of lash out at each person individually in, in that kind of just like hurt jealousy. So yeah, the the whole first act or first half of the second act, I think, is really good at just getting things moving in really clever ways. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about. Royal Tenenbaum, actually, like thinking about Bender as far as characters that like you maybe don't like and have kind of weird intentions for like coming into a family, essentially, and like stirring things up Uh, and they're antagonists, essentially. But it's through that antagonism that things do get stirred up and things get hard. But then also like bonds are formed and experiences are had that wind of Um, happened otherwise and so yeah i think having bender be such a key role like he he is the thing that makes all of this happen but he's also the antagonist i think it's a good reminder for writers that like the antagonist doesn't have to be an evil person that you're trying to kill like the forces of antagonism can take many shapes and their job is to push the heroes forward and force them to make choices and, and do things. And then you also have, of course, Vernon, the teacher who is there 
doing that thing where he is a much worse person than right. Bender. Yep. So we can hate him more than we hate Bender. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the key to what makes this whole thing work is to have, as you just said, have Bender there in the immediate to sort of cause all these interactions to happen because otherwise they'd probably all just sit there quietly for eight hours and go home right exactly. you know um and right. then you have the midpoint scene is like literally bender versus vernon where vernon really reveals himself to be sort of the uglier than you realized you know like oh, you're like yeah. oh he's kind of a scary principal guy and then that midpoint scene you're like oh no he's 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 bad and then then that's when the shift starts to happen. There's still plenty of conflict between these characters in the second half, but that's where the shift starts to happen. Where now Bender is kind of on their side, and now it's this team, this club, if you will. I just came up with that um, uh, versus this greater antagonist that that you know whether it is Vernon specifically or sort of adulthood or the idea of who you're supposed to be, you know, on a more kind of thematic level. Um, and, and I think that like, yeah, those, the sort of immediate antagonist and the bigger antagonist is really what makes like, it's just the engine of this entire movie. Mm-hmm. Exactly that you, you just said the word engine there. And I was thinking so much about Bender and him being the engine of the movie this time when I was watching it. And I was thinking a lot about the dramatic question because when you look at the scenes, especially in the first half, and you kind of, you know, they, they start to get a like momentum to them a little bit in the second half. But in the first half, they feel really episodic and it's hard to see how they are connected to each other, right? Like you go from this sort of like incendiary scene where Bender's like trying to pick a fight and like he's talking to Claire and he's talking to um, Andrew, Andy. That's what we're going to call Emilio. He's talking to Emilio. Um, <laughs> Emilio. <laughs> Emilio. The mighty ducks man himself. Sorry. <laughs> but then it goes like from there to the sequence where they're all really bored, right? <laughs> and they like yeah. fall asleep. So there's there's this really episodic nature to the first half of it. And so I think what keeps that going is the dramatic question. And it feels like in most of this movie, the dramatic question is, what is Bender going to do? <laughs> mm. Or really, is Bender going to do X or like get X reaction that it seems like he's trying to get? So, so many of the scenes, especially in the first half, are structured around Bender is trying to make everybody mad <laughs> or he's just trying to elicit a reaction from people who are trying not to react. And the dramatic question of that becomes, will Bender get a reaction? Whether that's from Vernon or from Claire or, you know, he goes after Brian at one point or, you know, whatever it is. And so I think that it's hard to write that kind of a little character and because it's unclear what his goals are other than he's just trying to rattle everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you, I mean, you hit on it right there, Alex, with your insecurity and watching it this time around with his insecurity and watching with Alex's this time insecurity. Around, <laughs> <laughs> all the insecurity that Alex has um, about Bender. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just thinking like, you know, Bender doesn't have a clear goal. And so what's driving the character internally um, isn't evident on the page necessarily. Uh, although I do think Judd Nelson does a pretty good job of kind of playing it, but it really just becomes, we watch the next scene because the last scene was so much of like, Bender's trying to do this. And then he totally got 
Andrew to like wrestle him to the ground and then he pulled out his switchblade and then it, you know, whatever. Like that last scene exploded. So we assume the next scene might also explode and it kind of keeps the whole thing moving in a way that it otherwise just doesn't move. He, he's, I was just going to say really quick, I feel like he's not dissimilar from the Joker almost, like the Joker in the, sure. in the Dark Knight, where <laughs> yeah. it's just like, this character is basically here like on behalf of the writer to cause like chaos. story and chaos. Yeah. And that's essentially what Bender is doing, but in both cases, obviously, it's, it's rooted in. There is some deeper motivation and there is a mystery around it, and that's partially why you want to like lean in and find out more. And that is cool with Bender, how you do get to you know, slowly they're doling out kind of the secrets and the vulnerabilities that he has. Uh, and really, he's kind of the first like domino to fall in some ways in terms of yeah. exposing the vulnerabilities that then kind of makes it uh, OK or sets the tone for other people to eventually be be following suit. Right. I was thinking specifically about your video, Michael, on The Dark Knight, where you're talking about like the Joker's like he's after Gotham's soul and like the dramatic question is sort of like who, who wins between Batman and the Joker. And that, that is what I was thinking about as you guys were talking is like Bender feels like he is there to, to sort of win their souls, you know, and the dramatic question almost like of the entire movie becomes, are these people going to be okay, including Bender? And it ends right with him like victorious. Yeah. Like that's the final shot. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, kind of framing it in that way, as I pointed out, the central conflict is actually between the teens and the adults. Mm. And all four of those other teenagers walk into this movie basically on the adult's side or willing to do what the adults tell them to do in a lot of ways, willing to behave the way that the adults want them to behave, willing to sit in their boxes that the adults have put them in or that the social pressures have put them in. Um, and Bender is the one that is not willing to do that. Um, and put, and basically, yeah, like inspires them all to act out and break down those stereotypes and those expectations that have been placed on them. And so, yes, he does win their souls. <laughs> he does win their souls by the end. Um, and I think that that's set up from the beginning. Again, he's parentless, right, when we first meet him. So mm -hmm. you can kind of think of him as like a, the prototypical independent teen. When I think it's interesting that you can kind of track the growth of the bonds between the characters by their willingness to kind of take increasing risks for each other. You know, mm -hmm. the way that they all cover for Bender yeah. after that midpoint when he like falls back into the room, you know, he's <laughs> not behaving great in that moment. And no. yeah, they're still, <laughs> they're still covering for him. And, and I, I think there's, there's a sense of like, all the teens begin to buy into we're going to stick with each other against this authority figure, which is not there in the beginning when they're having more disagreements. And some are saying now, you know, you got to leave the door open. You got to like, you know, do what he says. Nobody's saying that by the end. Mm -hmm. They're all kind of united in their opposition. Yeah. Something we're kind of moving towards now, which I, which I want to mention is like the use of space in this movie. Um, you know, as you guys were talking about like, Oh, Bender's not going to sit there. Like because they're all confined to these desks or tables, 
when Bender suddenly says, I'm going to go sit over in the stairs, they're in this giant room, right? But then it's like, because the movie has kept everyone in this small space for so long, when he gets up and just moves to like the, not even the back of the room, like the middle of the room, suddenly it's like, oh, he's so far away, right? And then the door between their, between them and Vernon's office, it's like when that door is shut, now that changes the dynamic of what's going on in the in the library versus Vernon's office. And then, of course, as the movie goes on, you're in the halls, right? And then now you're you're in, in the ceiling, uh, and and then and then now they're like filling the library and they're dancing in the library, you know. And it's really cool to see a movie that almost entirely takes place in one room and really could take place in one room. Like you don't, you could have some of those other scenes if you were making this into a play, like you could have some of those other scenes just take place in like other parts of the library. But if you just had people wandering the library in the first 10 minutes of the movie, it wouldn't create the same dynamics that it does to have them all jam together for so long. And then suddenly it's like, Oh no, we can be over here. We can go out there. And then it's like this very confined movie starts to feel like it opens up over the course of 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as you're pointing out, it's thematic, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the characters are stuck in their boxes at the beginning and they're just going to sit there. Um, you know, we talked about containment, uh, both with hunt for red October and with the uh, die hard, uh, to other very contained movies, similar to this one where people crawl and, through vents. Like, yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Um, and we talked about how, you know, containment is such a great device for creating a pressure cooker of a situation where characters are forced to make decisions. But in this case, the containment is very much like created by the character's own like psyche, mm -hmm. you know, psyches essentially. The room that they're in is not small or claustrophobic. The school that they're in is not small or claustrophobic. And technically they could all just get up and walk out the door at any moment, but it, is creating that sense of like, um, or it taps into a feeling that teens and children often have of confinement, even when the physical space isn't necessarily physically confining, um, because of your, because of rules, <laughs> because of right. rules, because of expectations and the stakes that you feel like exists between you and the adults. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's doing really, really great. Like having a big open library is a much better, more interesting locale for this to take place than like a very small box actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so I think it's a really good point and I'm glad you brought it up, Brian, because it, the, the feeling that I have when I watch this movie is like, I've gone on a journey with these people. Like it feels like, like a hero's journey almost like we've, we've traveled a great distance and learned a lot. And by the end of this journey, we are different people. But as both of you were calling out, it's basically just one room. It's like one room and some hallways, but the way, like you're saying that you're calling out of how they use that space, how they, use those those rules to make the space feel small but then in the design of the space there are these like nooks and crannies for them to expand out in for them to make their own and such that it feels like you know it's their library almost by the end and i think it's, it's loading a glass door <laughs> right with your emilio yeah 80s um but i think what's also interesting in that uh, speaks to the kind of containment, uh, like a tool you can use when doing the containment thing is when they do split up the group, like it only happens a couple times, but I feel like it is used to 
interesting effect. And so for the the first time is when the kids are all hungry. And so it's like two of them are assigned to go get drinks from the vending machine, because I guess that's how that works. Uh, and, you know, we have the characterization where Emilio wants like Vernon to choose Claire so he can walk with Claire, but instead he chooses Allison. And it's like, oh, interesting. So this is a new pair. And so it kind of splits off these little groups again in ways that wouldn't naturally happen. Like we see that very literally happen. Like this would not happen if not forced to happen, but it starts to form these other interesting uh, connections between between them and sort of forcing part of that engine basically of moving things forward. So it's interesting that it's at that moment and then later on in the library when they're going through each other's stuff, like that's kind of another moment where they're more relaxed, but they've kind of gravitated into different little pairings of people. And so Claire and Bender are off kind of having a slightly more intimate moment and Brian and Andrew and, and Allison or Allison. Yeah. That, <laughs> She's such an, I want to talk about her too. Yeah, let's talk about Allison. Yeah, it's it's fun how they do that and how that brings out different dynamics that, you know, in microcosm makes different connections, but also helps overall bring these characters together. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, speaking of Allison, watching this movie... At first, I was really feeling like this is kind of annoying because she feels like this very uh, just like random kooky, like she's the weird girl character. Look, the baloney is flung up onto the statue. And um, and, and I and I think I was reading it as like, yeah, maybe this is kind of like the more shallow of the characters in in its just like showy 80s, like quirkiness. But I watching it again it really was striking me at how much it actually does all add up like all these characters do add up in a, in their own coherent ways based on their flaw based on their fears their insecurity their relationship with their parents um she is this this interesting character whose thing is i want to be paid attention to i want to be seen and my basically strategy for that right. is to be outrageous and to be strange so that I cannot be ignored. And, and I really appreciate how this movie, it, it begins in this place where it feels like, okay, we're just doing the surface level stereotypes and it understands the psychology of those stereotypes, including the bully, including what drives a boy like Bender and goes deep enough to understand this is what actually drives that behavior. And, and actually bothers to reveal that about all the characters. So really, really cool that the movie is both 
the template for all the the ripoffs that just do the surface level stuff, but is also actually understands human psychology and and gets at what creates these archetypes in the first place. Yeah, well, returning to that question that one of our patrons asked us about the genre of this movie, I think I'm pretty resoundingly going to settle on its comedy. And because it's really funny is thing number one. Mm -hmm. Um, But also because we were talking um, when we spoke to John Truby and about his new book and where he breaks down like genre um, themes and kind of how like genre is really about the kinds of themes that each uh, genre treats or or is, you know, sort of imbued with. Mm -hmm. And he talks about comedy as being about manners and morals and I was thinking about the stakes of these various interactions between all of the different teens. And they're very much about manners, right? Like what you can say, what you can't say, what you should reveal about yourself or not reveal about yourself. Um, and you have somebody like Bender who is transgressing moral boundaries um, by by being bad-mannered uh, in so many ways, which actually does create a lot of comedy or can create a lot of comedy when you see people reacting to him. But then it's also about like, how do characters hold these manners? Um, and like, at what point do they sort of like the manners sort of crack under the situation? Uh, and so thinking a lot about Allison and how the stakes of the social interactions for her are different than they are for somebody like Claire or Andy or even Brian, Right. These are those three characters are very much sort of bound to more familiar moral or like mannered codes that we might, you know, immediately identify like, oh, I've all been in that situation where I'm just trying to be polite, just trying to answer the question. I'm trying not to ruffle any feathers. I love it when Andrew is trying to placate everybody (laughs) (laughs) where he's just trying to He's like I'm in physics, physics club. Like, just trying to, you know, get into oh, everybody's... Brian. Uh, Brian. Talk about Brian. Oh, sorry, Brian. Yeah. Um, the, the, the rule of thumb, uh, you know, if you've seen My So-Called Life or The Breakfast Club, the nerdy characters are always named Brian. Brian. Yeah. They're Brian. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Interesting. Uh, sorry. Yes. This, the scenes where Brian is trying to placate everybody, right? <laughs> where he's trying to say, like, fellas, let's just write our essays. Like... You know, he's just trying to fit in and and ruffle as few feathers as possible. So you have characters like that. And then you have characters on the fringes like Allison, Mm -hmm. um, where the stakes for the social interactions for her are very low. She can't possibly sink lower on the social totem pole (laughs) than she already is. Um, But climbing higher is something we can see or being seen, being known, being addressed directly and, and spoken to. And, you know, when she... Like, you want to see what's in my bag? Just this sort of compulsive uh, question. We sort of come to understand the stakes of that as well. And again, these things are all very funny. When you play on what, you know, the manners of our society, you get comedy. Um, but it's it's just such a genius sort of, yeah, as you're pointing out, Michael, constant exploration of where those boundaries are. Yeah. And, you know... You're touching on something interesting, which is the, this: these two different sort of sets of characters between Brian, Andrew, and Claire, who they'll talk about their personal lives and their sort of frustration with their parents, but it's very surface, right? Until it gets really pulled out of them in that in that 
circular scene. Um, but then you have Bender and Allison who are like, oh, let me tell you about my problems. Like, isn't it crazy that I do this? And like, I'm a nymphomaniac and like this and da, da, da. And it's like, that is their shield. Like their, their mask mm -hmm. is oversharing, right? And then th for them, what has to be pulled out of them is who they really are, right? Like, so it's not just like, oh no, they're all fine because they're honest with themselves. Like, no, they're just being sort of dishonest with themselves in a different way than the other characters are, which I find yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so you bring up that, that scene, uh, the circular scene, which it's uh, like, I almost want to like go and make a video about just that scene. There's so much that happens in that scene. It's like 20 yeah. minutes long. I think mm -hmm. it's like 20 or 25 pages in the script. Um, and it's such a departure uh, in a lot of ways from the rest of the movie, not not like in a way that's out of sync. It, rather, it's like exactly what you want, basically that moment mm -hmm. where, like we've been calling out, the first half, especially the first half of the second act, um, there are these kind of episodic things, like you were saying, Trisha, of like now we're seeing them, you know, they're falling asleep together or they're eating or like now they have a little conflict. There's a lot of movement jumping around. Uh, there's kind of like momentum and all that kind of stuff. By the end for, you know, that that 20 minute sequence, it sort of like contains crisis and maybe even climax. Like it's it's the whole like dark night of the soul. All of that happens all in this one conversation. Uh, it's just them sitting in a circle for 20 minutes. Nobody moves or goes and, anywhere. Yeah. And it's so good. But there's so many movements within all of that. And I feel like that was, I was already really enjoying the movie, but like during that scene when it was like, oh, I'm like full attention on every line and everything that's happening in this because all of it has been woven together. Now they're in this kind of like therapy circle where at moments they, they're like friends and we have this kind of, uh, you know, tenuous trust that's been built up between us. But then like we start to really reveal some stuff and people kind of push and that's sort of that, you know, what you want from the crisis, which is the the worst case scenario, the reason you were afraid of sharing these things in the first place, you know, afraid of rejection, afraid that when you say, hey, are we friends and we're going to, are we going to see each other on Monday and hang out? And the answer is no. Like all of that happens and the movie doesn't shy away from that. And it also doesn't like fix it in a way that feels cheap, which I, I said yeah. at the beginning, I really like where it's, you know, are they going to be friends? I still don't know. Like, obviously, by the end, you know, romantic relationships have formed and maybe they're I like to think they might be closer on Monday than they thought they would be during mm -hmm. these darkest moments. But there's no certainty. But in going through that that whole process, which happens in real time, they're creating a situation where they all get to be seen in their complexity together. And like, it's OK Right. It's that eternal sunshine thing of like, but what if, what, how do we do deal with this? And how do we do that? It's, it's going to suck. And it's like, okay, that's okay. Mm. I really like that. That that's just really good. Uh, so good, good job movie. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of why like a teen movie is so suited to this contained, like all happens in one day story is that I think that it's the most realistic uh time of life for this for these kind of seismic 
emotional changes to happen. Yes. I'm pretty sure I had some sleepovers in which like the journey felt this big, mm. you know, like some yeah. where you're like up at 3 a.m. talking to some of your closest friends and like truths are being revealed and it feels like everything has changed and the world is everything's monumental. It is a time in life where in the course of eight hours, things can feel very different. Um, so I think it's just really smart to do a teen movie in a contained setting in real time, because I think it's the most realistic contained movie you can make <laughs> people at that point in their lives facing those kind of teen heightened emotions. Yeah. And the search for identity too, right? That's yeah. right. one of sort of You're the key, in flux. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. key developmental questions that teenagers are going through. And that is the central conflict of this movie is like, who am I? Am I who my parents want me to be? Am I who my peers say that I am? Um, or am I neither of those things? Um, do I get to decide for myself? And so I think, yeah, all of that is beautifully, if painfully explored. Yeah. I'm now, as you were talking, I was just like, with like a before midnight situation where it's like now they're all trapped in the library, but they're all like parents or they're all like older. I don't know. Oh. It'd be really interesting and totally different because it wouldn't check any of those boxes that you guys are just pointing out that are important. The early dinner club. <laughs> <laughs> no. There, it is. there are a couple of funny things about the conclusion to the movie. Uh, really just talking about the Allison conclusion. No. Uh, here. <laughs> we gotta Crime. get there. We we have to do it. Dragon Tattoo and Breakfast Club are just like, let's degoth this character. It's the wrong choice always. Because <laughs> right. I just, yeah, I just, that that is where the movie, it takes me all the way in this 20 minute, you know, therapy sequence to be like, wow, this could just be like a modern film. Like this is, this feels fresh. This feels great. It feels honest, timeless. And then we get the reveal. The makeover. Where where Allison walks out and that music is playing. (laughs) And the way that Andrew and Brian like react to her is like everything has changed. Where she's just like, she looks kind of weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now she doesn't look like herself anymore. (laughs) I just want to say on the topic of John Hughes writing young women characters. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Molly Ringwald wrote a really wonderful essay for The New Yorker back in 2018 about John Hughes. And she's sort of looking at his filmography, especially the three movies that she made with him through a Me Too lens. Um, and she's also a, a parent at that point. And she said, you know, she sort of opens the essay by saying, like, I watched The Breakfast Club with my 10 year old daughter. And like, here's what we talked about and here's how I feel about it. And the the piece is really, really well written and uh, covers a lot of ground about John Hughes and adolescence and women and sex. And um, it's I just really recommend that everybody read it. And it was also brought up by a, a patron of ours. I think there's sort of an open question to how some of it has aged and uh, like the Allison makeover is a part of that, right? Obviously there's a lot of sexual content in this movie in terms of the dialogue. Um, mostly Bender just absolutely trying to get under Claire's skin um, and feeling possibly part, you know, we t- hinted at his insecurity and 
it's part of it is probably because of Claire's rejection of him and like ongoing rejection of him kind of. And so I think that there's a lot of room for nuance um, in this movie and in, in the way that we read this movie and in some of John Hughes's other movies about young women. And so uh, just really want to recommend that article by Molly Ringwald if you want to sort of do a deeper dive into uh, looking at these movies through that lens. We can, yeah, make sure we put that in the show notes yeah. for people to check out. That moment, as you're pointing out, dialogue throughout was like striking and and uncomfortable at times. I think what made me ultimately not, you know, uh, get thrown off the horse by it was that there there did seem to be like sweetness underneath it or like, you know, that there's characters, the characters care about each other in a way that I find believable, even if kind of the external actions they're taking are dated and problematic in different ways. And honestly, the Allison moment was pretty weird for me until I went and read the script. And then reading the script, there's a line that that is in the movie, but I was maybe just distracted by what was happening. But Allison says, when Claire's putting you know the makeup on her, she's like, why are you being so nice to me? And Claire says, because you're letting me. And I sort of realized, oh, okay, that's that's like the important character moment here. Is that like, right. like Allison is letting herself like have friends and be vulnerable. And so that's underneath these layers of makeup, there is like a deeper bond happening here mm -hmm. that I think is ultimately doing the right work for the movie, even if the specific choices is, is what it is. Yeah. Well, I actually, I actually think there is something. It's very, you know, gendered or whatever, but it's there is something very sweet about that moment where they're together and, you know, Claire cares enough to, like, you know, pay attention to her and do what Claire is able to do for her, which is put on makeup. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so that part in some ways, that doesn't actually feel that dated to me, you know, the, the makeup over part, whatever. But it the part that is that makes me laugh is the boy's reaction to her and 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 the movies the the like the, the camera's reaction to her with like a bow in her hair as being now this like goddess um this is funny <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean very quickly we were talking on slack before we recorded about like what the act structure of this movie is and it feels like the third act of this movie is the last like nine minutes right where it's after the mm -hmm. circle scene and and i started thinking of it as like maybe it's a five act movie where we get to know the characters and then we sort of see their conflicts and then we kind of have the midpoint switch then we have the circular scene and then we have the, the the kind of finale but basically it's like the movie is taking nine minutes to be like hey look at these two couples that suddenly formed <laughs> like look at you know that the wasn't really there for the first 80 minutes of the movie that suddenly it's like hey what about this so i feel like especially allison's change allison's makeover plus andrew andrew and allison's relationship just sort of feels like what like where did this come from at all you know and uh, and i think it's one of those i'm not saying it was you know you have the hallway scene with them and stuff but um but i feel like there that is sort of one of these 80s kinds of things right where you kind of i mean like or even neo and trinity we talked about this in the matrix right, right. just this sort of like <laughs> oh by the way these characters are in love now you're like all right sure why not it's a movie movies do this kind of stuff yeah it, 
I, I will say with um, you were reacting, Michael, but like Allison and Andrew, I think there there is enough that I believe that they are interested in each other. The completeness of the like romance arcs by the end does not right. feel believable for either couple. I was specifically talking about the, when you talk about the boy's reaction, Alex, the fact that Andrew's like, oh, now I like you. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, that if it undercuts what came before in some ways, right. like, and that's kind like of just now like, I see you with your bow, right? Yeah. And that's kind of like the feeling <laughs> that it, that it can invoke. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I have more thoughts, but I'll I'll save them for the lessons part of, of things, which why don't we go ahead and go into right now? Uh, before we go into what lessons we're going to take away from The Breakfast Club, first want to let everyone know that for our next episode, we're doing something a little different. We're doing a versus episode, uh, Rocky versus Creed. Yeah. So, the original Rocky <laughs> Brian's film. Brian's dream episode right. has come true. He finally gets to talk about boxing movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Finally gets to talk about Rocky and Creed. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, because you've been pitching this for like years, right? Mm-hmm. Of, of, yeah, excited too. And I've never seen Rocky. Uh, I, I saw Creed and I liked it. I haven't seen Rocky. He said, surprising no one. Um, so I am <laughs> yeah. uh, excited to see that and have the perspective of someone that did it backwards and uh yeah talk about talk about all that stuff it's gonna be fun okay lessons what lessons are we going to take away from the breakfast club maybe i'll start maybe i'll just jump in since we were just kind of talking about um the allison andrew moment and yeah the reaction i was having i agree that like the 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 need to complete the romantic arcs such that everyone is is kissing in the final frames of the movie like that is when the movie's like starts waving a flag that's like, remember, you're still watching a movie. And I kind of snap out of the beautiful trance I was in up to that point. I was like, all right, okay, yeah, sorry. You're still still a movie. We're still in the 80s. But I do think what's something that I liked about the Andrew Allison progression is, so we have that hallway moment in the first half of Act 2 where they go off on their own. But then after that moment where Allison volunteers to share her bag, right? Like everyone's like, sharing their bag and she's like don't you want to see what's in mine and like pours it out and it's clear like it's a very clear i want attention kind of moment i think it's really interesting that andrew sees that aspect of her and he has a line that's like you know because the stuff in her bag is you know stuff that you would need if you're running away from home and he's like you either really want to run away from home or you really want people to think that you really want to run away from home. And that stirs her up and she goes and walks into a different part of the library and he like follows her and kind of presses her and sort of like, you know, you know, and in a not terribly forceful way, but pushes her to like talk to him and like be open. And like, there's, there's something about Andrew where he sees people and he cares and is willing to listen and she's willing to share in that moment. And, she is also throughout the the movie, particularly in the second half of Act Two, um, 
watching him and you know when everyone else is like let's go get high andrew has this moment of like i guess i have to because everyone else is doing it is sort of this moment and you can see on allison's face a look of disappointment and then later she gives voice to that where it's like you know you can't think for yourself you do what everyone's always telling you to do and so uh, the lesson kind of crystallized. I was talking about this movie after watching it with a couple other people. Um, and someone pointed out that there's in this movie, there are people telling each other truths about themselves in a weaponized harsh way. And the journey is to arrive at a place where you can tell someone truths about themselves in a helpful way, like trying to help them grow and face their vulnerabilities and see, see, the benefit of going through that um, difficulty. And I feel like the Andrew and Allison relationship tracks that really nicely where they see each other in ways the others don't and are end up pushing each other and calling each other on their BS basically and saying, you're lying to yourself. And I'm telling you that not because I want to hurt you, but because I want to help you. And that, that just, it's like a nice little summation of what character growth and relationship growth can be. And I really, I don't know. I found that lovely in this movie. So mm. that's my lesson. I really like that. Um, it kind of dovetails actually into my lesson a little bit, which is more about the weaponized truth telling um, mm. that you mentioned, particularly with Vernon um, and Bender and mm. how mm. crucial there's sort of like these two really critical confrontations between Vernon and Bender in the first half. Um, and the first one is when Vernon starts doling out more like Saturday detentions. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, it's just to put Bender in his place in front of the other students. Um, but it's also, you know, the first time that we really see Bender's, I want to say like the physical vulnerability of still essentially being a kid, right? Where Bender comes striding in adultless, you know, parentless, like seems to not care about anything or anyone trying to get under everybody's skin is being wildly disrespectful to Vernon along with everybody else from the jump. Um, and then there's that scene where it's basically Vernon reminding him that he actually doesn't have any control um, over what happens to him because he still essentially is a teen, which doesn't work considering Judd Nelson looks nothing like a teen, but that's... Yeah. <laughs> I think he, I think he was 53 uh, when he, when he this movie. I looked it up. He was only 26, uh, but he was 26. Um, but, you know, I, I think his performance is great, though, where in that confrontation, you can just see him struggling, realizing, you know, as it goes on, and he's like, you want another one? And he's like, yes. And he's like, okay, there's another one for you. You want another one? Like just basically piling on punishments and taking control of Bender's life to put him in his place. And I think that that's crucial. We've just, you know, there is nothing likable about Bender up until that point. Mm -hmm. But then again, by establishing Vernon as being this, um, yeah, being the, the real antagonist of the movie and the real enemy to the kids in that scene. And, and there's that element of weaponized truth telling to that confrontation as well, where he says like, I'm sure you'd love for the rest of these students to think that you are, that you don't care about anything, that you're a big tough guy, but watch while I just take all of that away from you. Um, so that's really critical. And then the scene at the midpoint where, yeah, he puts Bender in the closet and 
basically, you know, tells him that he's gonna be alone and he's nobody and he's worthless and no one will remember him and all this stuff that he says to Bender, which, you know, might be true or has a ring of truth to it. At least we can see that on Bender's face. And then he goes on to taunt Bender about like, you want to hit me? Go ahead. Like, it'll be my word against yours. You essentially, again, are powerless in this world. And there's, there's nothing you can actually do to fight back. It's basically, it, it sets up again, the sort of central conflict of the movie between the teens and the adults, the adults kind of, yeah, putting kids in their place in a way that just feels so like abusive and horrible to mm-hmm. us watching it now. Real quick. I just want to say Jed Nelson's performance in that scene. It's like face. that. Tell, right. That tells us so much because he could just be rolling his eyes like, oh, he's threatening me again. But the he's looking at him like, what is happening? Like, this is not normal. I've never seen this before. I'm not prepared for this. And that just tells us so much about what Vernon is is revealing to him. And, you know, uh, by extension, the audience at that point. Right. Or, or he's seen it before, but in his dad's eyes. Sure. And yeah, right. This, you know, this is triggering that. Yeah, and definitely that's a really good point there, Alex, too, because we know something about Bender's home life at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the threat of violence, too, right? Knowing right. that in a contest between an adult and a kid, a kid always loses. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so there's that. But then also I was struck this time by realizing that's basically Vernon pretty much exits the movie. Like mm-hmm. after that point, he pretty much never talks to the – he pops in and out the whole first half of the movie – and then he pretty much never talks to the teens ever again. We have that little scene with him in the janitor. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's <laughs> it. There's like two tiny scenes where he has like a subplot that's like, maybe you shouldn't be terrible or maybe you're insecure also. And it's like, thanks, janitor. And, but, and then like, and then he's, yeah. just, he's out of the movie otherwise. He's out of the movie. And even when even at the end, when the teens all leave, he's not there. He doesn't come to get them from the library and tell them that it's all over. Right. Like. He he has served his purpose as representing the evil force of the adults of the movie. Um, and I think that those two scenes are just, I think that they're just so crucial to like selling us or like putting us into the room with all of the kids because the scenes with Vernon are so... I don't know. I was going to say harmful, but yeah, I guess what I mean is, I guess what I mean is abusive, right? There's Mm -hmm. this power dynamic um, in them that is really critical to understanding anything about Bender. And so when Bender is, Bender in particular, and so when Bender is like laying into Claire later, telling her about how spoiled and selfish and like the contempt, just the sheer contempt that he has for her, um, the verbal abuse we know, we've seen it heaped on him as well. And so it like becomes a part of the context in which we understand Bender is the constant abuse that he's receiving from the adults in his life. So anyway, really crucial, interesting scenes to study. It's also interesting that, yeah, around that time that he's digging into Claire, I forget the exact order of things, but somewhere around there is when the idea of like, are we just going to become our parents like mm-hmm. comes up also. Mm. And I think that's, you know, subtext there and, and all of that stuff i think yeah. it's right after that where he's just made her cry be. because he's just you know told her that she's 
the worst ever, basically. And then someone says, are we going to become our parents? Yeah. No. Yeah. You're exactly right. I have the script there. Yeah. 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 There's a lot in this movie. Good. Good writing there. Um, Alex, what's your lesson? Yeah. It, talking about that scene, once again, the therapy scene, Michael, you mentioned earlier that nothing's really solved. And that is so honest. I, I love movies like all the, all the before trilogy movies, before Sunrise, Sunset, you know, Midnight, the problems that the couple in, in the movie are facing aren't, aren't resolved. You know, there's always kind of an open-ended, uh, things aren't perfect, things aren't right. And we have, we have an ongoing issue, but there's no solving it tonight. We're just going to have to go on. And, and I really appreciate the it's it's you know another goofy 80s moment but there's this really lovely catharsis after that scene where first they all just start laughing when brian reveals that the gun he brought to school was a flare gun and that just kind of dissolves the tension of the scene and we go right into like a dance sequence and we kind of we're, we're not going to solve these problems we're not going to solve what happens on monday what we, what we are going to do is just dance with each other and just be goofy and be ourselves with each other. And that is the only quote unquote solution that can be offered, you know, in, in this moment. And I just, I find movies that do that so much more honest than like a rom-com or a comedy where it's like, and now here's the scene where we say specifically the right. thing that we need to say to each other. And now that is a case closed or like, the thing has been gotten exactly, and now my life is perfect. Um, it's just it's so much more poignant and so much more resonant to, to have people express themselves, share their deepest selves, and not have a solution to the things that are bothering them, but rather the sharing itself was the thing they need they needed to do, and the being seen was the thing that needed to happen. And life will go on and be complicated, but there's an emotional catharsis that is what's actually important. Yeah. And yeah, I just would love, love to see more comedies and more rom-coms and just movies be comfortable with staying in that space versus the didactic solution ending. Right. Oh yeah. And again, it's, it's that extracting the right lessons from the thing. Right. So like it's a comedy, it's fun. It's about these kids like, you know, becoming friends when they wouldn't, but it's more messier than that. And it's more raw and honest than that. And if you just copy and paste the surface of it, you're not going to get any of that magic. Yep. Brian, what's your lesson? Uh, yeah. I mean, definitely along these lines, I was just, I was just really thinking about how to make dialogue compelling, you know, cause obviously this movie is one of the, one of the big examples of a movie that's just people in a room talking, you know, you, you could say that about movies, like, I don't know, the social network or something like that, but, it, but this is like just genuinely like there are just people and they are in a room and they are talking and that is 90% of the movie. Um, and you know, we talked about the, the dinner sequence at the beginning of little Miss sunshine where that scene couldn't be a whole movie unless you wrote the hell out of it to really establish a whole bunch of stuff. But it's like, that's a great five minutes of here's some character exposition and, you know, here's some conflict and here's a little overture of what you're going to see for the rest of the movie. Um, but breakfast club, Glengarry, Glen Ross, 12 angry men, uh, even to some degree, the before trilogy, as you were talking about Alex, um, and obviously, you know, plays, there's a whole, there's a whole medium about just people <laughs> in, in a room talking to each other. Um, you know, they're, they're just 
told completely through dialogue and what makes that compelling. And what's interesting about The Breakfast Club is the stakes are so much lower on an external uh, level than than the other thing, right? Twelve Angry Men. It's like, oh, the defendant's life and freedom is at stake. Glengarry Glen Ross, their jobs are at stake, and by extension, their their lives, their livelihood. Uh, the Before trilogy is this couple going to get together, right? Like that's every rom com is just like, hey, I really want these people to get together. That's Friends or The Office, right? The will they won't they? Like we're we're just going to watch forever and see if this happens. And Breakfast Club, it's like, because it's about high schoolers, this day is not going to have big external implications for these characters. You know, do either of the couples, are they together in two weeks? We don't know. We don't care. Like, that's not really important to us, you know. Um, but the internal struggle and growth they're dealing with is monumental. You get the sense that every one of them is going to be permanently changed by this day, even if it's not, they got the job or they got whatever, you know what I mean? Like they, they won the championship. Like it's not that it's just this thing that they needed in their lives to sort of progress to the next chapter of growth has, has, has occurred for all of them. Um, so that creates the stakes. And then and then obviously you have a ton of conflict, you know, their own internal conflicts and their conflicts with each other and their shared conflict with Vernon and their sort of almost invisible parents, even though we see some of them at the beginning of the movie. Um, and then just finally, like, I like when characters in movies just kind of talk about life and the meaning of things. And, you know, it's like, don't be afraid to put your themes into the characters mouths and just have them argue about stuff, uh, you know, and sometimes, sometimes that can make your thing too on the nose. Uh, as, you, as you were saying, Alex, like, Oh, the character are going to say exactly what they need to say in this moment. Um, but I like to be able to watch a scene and feel like I'm having a late night conversation with my friends about the meaning of life, you know? And, uh, and it just always sits well with me when movies do that. And I think that there is something compelling about that. It may not be compelling to everybody. And maybe that's why it's not in more movies, but I personally, and I, and I think other people like when it's just like, just have your characters just say like, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, what is this? Is it going to be this? Is it, is this bad? Is this good? You know, I live my life like this. Is that okay? Is that wrong? And, uh, I just think that makes, just it turns a movie into really interesting dialogue part of a conversation you know michael you talked about wakanda forever just this sequence about like hey this is how this is how it feels when you feel bad and like that's a thing that exists right and it's like movies aren't always movies are sometimes afraid to just say those things yeah yeah, yeah. and like and and do it honestly like get to the right, raw right, truth right. of it right as i think what you're you're hitting there is like in the having the characters talk about the theme, really investigate it and get at the honest like complexity of it, because that's what we like from stories is to have something dig deep and confront us with things that we're too afraid to deal do. with in our normal lives. Like unless there's a bender there to force us to confront things we're not gonna confront, we're not gonna confront them. And so that's why we go see movies so we can watch other people do it and learn vicariously through them. A little mini lesson I want to call out to wrap this up is that the janitor character is interesting. Mm -hmm. I like that he's there at the end when they walk out of the hallway right. as a witness. And I think that's an interesting mm -hmm. thing that's useful to call out as having a character that witnesses change 
I think helps reinforce that. And so the janitor comes in earlier, sees them sitting awkwardly at their different tables, sees the before, he, they kind of treat him terribly, and then sees them walking out together as changed people. And that kind of helps clue us in and makes the audience feel that change of like, oh yeah, this person's reacting because things are different. And so I liked that moment. That's just before yep. everybody makes out in front of their parents. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. With no explanation <laughs> yeah. to their parents. That yeah. They have like new boyfriends and girlfriends. <laughs> right. I, that, that janitor almost feels like something out of like an old form of theater or something, you know, where it's like the narrator who comes in or like, who like, you know, just tells the story and like witnesses the characters and is like a, like a Greek God that just pops in and pops out. <laughs> there's, there's something about him that's a little bit magical actually, which yeah. I really like. Yeah. You're waiting for someone to say, like, there, there was a janitor who worked here, but he's been dead for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. That'd be, yeah, that'd be exciting. Um, awesome. Okay, so let's talk about what else we are watching. As a reminder, next week we're going to be talking about Creed versus Rocky. Trisha, what have you been watching recently? Yes, so if you like plays that uh well and movies that are adapted from plays i've got a doozy for you it's a movie i've been meaning to watch forever but i finally caught it it's a film from 1939 called the women um uh disclaimer it was remade i believe in 2008 uh with a bunch of modern actresses but i haven't seen that all i know is about the 1939 version um which rules really hard uh and it's a lot of people in rooms talking specifically it's a lot of women in rooms talking um women and there talking are is popular these days yeah right <laughs> uh there are no men in this movie Duh, don't hold your breath there will not even be one what there are will be uh, about 130 speaking roles for women wow, wow. uh and it's all female screenwriters and like a huge like female crew, like a lot of the crews, women as well. This is from 1939. This was a Damn. thing that happens. I know. It's amazing. Uh, starring Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, and Rosalind Russell and directed by George Cukor. Now, it does not have a female director. That would be a bridge too far in 1939. <laughs> um, no, but it, it's, uh, it's really great. It's uh, basically about... Uh, this woman who finds out that her husband is having an affair and she tries to decide what to do about it. And her girlfriends talk to her about it. Um, and she talks to her mother about it. She has a 10 year old daughter that she talks to about it. And then like it, you know, very much sort of has this like interconnected lives, almost sort of like sprawling thing. And there's these long scenes and sequences of women talking to each other, uh, in various social situations and they're gossiping, they're arguing, they're at one point catfighting in a magnificent way. Um, it's great. It's really funny. Um, and there's a lot of like poignancy to it about the relationships between all the characters. And I just really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and it's been on my list for ages. So definitely want to recommend the women. Um, and then, Check back in with me soon also because I have been at Virtual Sundance this week. Yeah. And so I've got a bunch of new movies to recommend uh, coming really soon. So as soon as I do, I'll get a little roundup going for you guys about all the best stuff I'm seeing at Sundance. But it's yet another banner year of awesome films coming out of there. 
Stuff we can't see until the fall. Yeah, sorry, or next year or something. Mm. Right. Right. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, cool. Alex, what have you been watching recently? So one of those nights just scrolling Netflix with the husband, like, what do we watch? I'm tired. It's been a long week. Let's watch Bullet Train. (laughs) Have you watched Bullet Train? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the movie that I saw the trailer for like 20 times in theaters. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Starring Brad Pitt. Uh, and it was, a, it's a strange movie. It feels like it was a movie that I, that would have come out like 20 years ago, like around like the kind of kill bill, like uh, Zack Snydery moments or just like we're making movies with like mega violence, but it's also kind of funny, but also kind of just like comic booky and Edgar Wrighty. Uh, and that is what it is. It is very poppy and bright, extremely violent and gory, uh, like fun for sure. It's kind of a stacked cast, like a lot of pretty people, you know, fighting on a train. Uh, so I can't <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not, not recommending it. Like, it was what I ended up needing on a Friday night where my brain was dead. Um, Bullet Train. It's a movie from <laughs> 20 years ago made now <laughs> hyper-violent. Great. <laughs> Brad Pitt. Having fun. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Michael Shannon, randomly. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> Sorry. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched a movie from 50 years ago that came out recently. Um, it's called The Phantom of the Open. Um, Whoa, and, you saw that? Yeah, it's uh, Mark Rylance and Sally Hawkins and Risa Fons. And Mark Rylance plays Maurice Flickcroft, who is a real-life guy from Manchester who in the 70s, when he was in his late 40s, decided to take up golf and he actually made it to the British Open. Um, But he was terrible and he ended up sort of becoming a celebrity, not because he was good at golf, but just because of his attitude and his persistence. And, you know, I saw someone describe it as like if Paddington played golf, right? Just that sort (laughs) of (laughs) kind of that like Ted Lasso elf Paddington, like, I don't care what you say. This is just the thing that I want to do. So I'm going to do it and you're going to deal with it. Um, and, and the reason I say it's a 50 year old movie is it, it really leans into this sort of like seventies disco kind of, uh, period piece vibe, uh, in the way that it's filmed and everything. And it's just, it's weird and quirky and entertaining and heartfelt. And, uh, I, I, it's sort of predictable, the big things, but it's also, it's like, how do we, how have we not, our generation now, have we not heard about this person? Right. And you get to see a little little clips of them at the end like movies tend to do based on real people um but yeah i think it's worth checking out nice yeah I remember seeing the trailer for that and being like oh that looks charming yeah yeah michael yeah so i recently watched in the mood for love uh oh, wow. for the first time oh. uh a patron had recommended it to me three years ago uh, and I was like you know what I'm gonna be better about watching movies I haven't seen I'm gonna order the DVD right now during this like you know during our call uh, and I did and then it sat on my shelf for three years a, D- a DVD DV- not sorry the blu-ray of it yeah please sorry <laughs> Wait a minute, uh, I mean digital media period I you know, now it's all mixing together for me um, it was really interesting and I want to watch it again my overall take was that it was moody 
and lovely. Lovey. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and any and the e and for e, there was a lot of hype around it, and so I was actually a little bit disappointed about that, about it, with it, and I was disappointed in myself for being disappointed in it. But I really want to watch it again because I think my expectations were miscalibrated for it's it. It's a weird movie to be like a hype move movie. Yeah, it's not a hype movie. I wouldn't say. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think you should watch it. Just like, don't get excited about it. Just like, don't think about it. Just go watch it. And I yeah. think you'll like letting it wash over you without expectations about what you think everyone has said about it should mean is probably a better way to watch it. Um, yeah, there are some movies where it's like the wash over you movies. Yeah. You don't want to go in with any hype. You mm -hmm. want to just go in with like blankness just like That's walk past thing. your tv and like <laughs> accidentally turn it on <laughs> right. it's one of the things about like social media these days is that there are yeah. certain like gems of movies that if you discover them yourself you're like oh my god this is the most beautiful film i've ever seen but being online it's like Suddenly, everyone has discovered those gems, and mm. they're just yelling at you about the gems. <laughs> and, like, and then it's cool right. to be a person who's discovered yes. the gem, right. and so you have to join the club yeah, of the people the who think club. movie is the best thing ever. <laughs> well, we talked about this in a very early episode. It's what I call the sideways problem, yeah, which was that everyone yeah. I knew who had seen Sideways without having hearing having heard anything about it was like this is the greatest movie ever. It's amazing, da, da. and then everyone I knew, including myself, who saw it post hype, was like. Movies annoying. <laughs> like, why do people like this movie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think if I had seen this when it came out, like, yeah, it would have been a totally different experience and I would have understood and had that falling in love experience. I think if I watched it again, I would have that experience. So anyway, in the mood for love. Yeah. All right. Well, we did it, guys. We talked about The Breakfast Club, talked about an 80s movie. Don't have to do it again. Uh, we won't be talking about the 80s at all anytime soon. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've checked that out. Once every five years. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, this has been our conversation about The Breakfast Club. Uh, if you want to help us make more episodes, head over to the Beyond the Screen Play Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you to our patrons for making this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. Off our Twitter handle, turn the show notes, send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode for Rocky vs. Creed. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.